I just love seeing you all come in like this. He's talking about the new refiners joining the Severed Patreon page. Just $5 a month and no cranial drill required. Go to patreon.com slash severed pod. Okay, you're all set. Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Sorry to bother you again there, Macro Data Refiner. I promise this is the last time, most likely, and as far as I know. By the way, this is Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. I'm your host, Alan S. Once again, I'm afraid I've had to awaken you in your home. It couldn't be helped. I've continued my rewatch of the rewatch, and I had a few more things I wanted to discuss with you. Let's call this season wrap-up part three, and... Let's not mention any of this to Cobell, okay? I continued my fun and relaxed rewatch of the first season. In the wake of creating the podcast, I was very deeply into all things Severance, so I started making connections to things I hadn't seen even after my full immersion while writing the podcast episodes. Let's just get into it. I've made more connections, and I've got more stuff I want to discuss about season one. Last time, you might remember me giving Dylan a hard time for taking 11 weeks to finish the Tumwater file. I came across something interesting about the name Tumwater since then. In the Wikipedia entry for the show, it says Tumwater was the code name given to the production while season one was shooting. Both Mark Geller and Catherine Shea have confirmed this info. Catherine mentioned in her interview how she was originally telling her friend she was working on Severance, but was then told to stop using that name, go with the code name. Tumwater was the code name. Sorry, Dylan, even with the cool backstory about the name, no refiner should be working on a file for 11 weeks. Cabal said to Grainer, It's PD reintegrated. The board's never acknowledged reintegration. We have to get his chip. I think this line is telling when it comes to standard operating procedure for dead severed workers. A number of internet speculators have taken Cobell's actions to mean this is what happens with every dead severed worker's chip. I have no other examples of dead severed workers to point to as an example, but I'm still pretty sure that's not right. The way Grainer reacted after he told Harmony about the status of the chip and the way Milchik reacted when he realized he was looking at Petey's chip. How did you? Would you mind taking that up to diagnostics for me? It's pretty obvious they don't normally run around with the cranial drill retrieving chips. I'm convinced Cobell only wanted it back because she just knew Petey'd been reintegrated. She needed the data from the chip in order to prove her claim. I don't think Lumen, as a general practice, is running around yanking chips out of the heads of dead severed workers. Petey was a special case which required defiling a body in a church. It kind of flew right by during the episode, but if you stop and think about it for two seconds, jamming a drill into the temple of a corpse is pretty dark. Part of this conversation couldn't have happened on the phone. Missed this before, the reading at Petey's funeral, the one being handled by Denise O'Connor, is a piece known as the Serum Prayer. This is a medieval prayer first used in 1514. What makes it interesting from the standpoint of severance is the first line, God be in my head and in my understanding. In the episode The UUR, when Dylan gets the book out of Mark's desk, he thumbs through some hanging file folders to find it. It dawned on me this time around, there isn't a single scrap of paper in any of those folders. It's like they're there for show. He has them because that's what's supposed to be in a file drawer. Macro data refiners just don't have any reason to actually use file folders. The details of this set are so amazing, I'm still finding stuff. Like, there are four chromed coat hangers on the coat rack in the MDR area, all perfectly spaced on the bar. More of those groupings of fours Andrew Baseman mentioned. If you start looking for things grouped in fours, they are almost as prevalent in the MDR space as red, green, blue color schemes. Ran the diagnostics. And? Full synaptic coupling. Peter Kilmer's memory was reintegrated. 
This is Grainer's quote after they'd run the diagnostics on Petey's chip. Let's get into some severance chip talk, the actual mechanics of the device. I've seen a lot of theories based on the chip being some kind of advanced thumb drive. I've never regarded the severance chip as a storage device, but a lot of speculators have glommed on to this idea. There are several theories out there saying each of the chips holds an entire consciousness. Some of these theories carry it a step further. They envision whole personalities being moved from one person's brain to another by transplanting the chip. This is why some theorists believe Cobell wanted Petey's chip back because it holds all of his memories. Some of these theories say the chip might even retain memories or traits of the previous chip owner as it is moved from skull to skull, like the Rebek the Goat theory we discussed last time. Rebek smells weird. Yeah, and she was making chewing noises, but she was not chewing. Sure, this makes for some fun speculation, but I've never been a big believer in the chip-as-container theories. I don't believe the severance chip itself contains memories or brain maps. It's not big enough, for one thing, and it really doesn't seem to be its purpose. In my mind, the chip is a switch, not a storage device. I'm basing this on the description of what it does found in the Lumen material about the procedure. I'm also basing this on the comments of neurosurgeon Vijay Agarwald, who acted as consultant on the show. In his Variety interview, Dr. Agarwald said the placement of the chip is very intentionally in the memory center of the brain. From there, it works as a traffic cop switching from one set of memories to another. What we're talking about is magical science. In fiction, you can assign whatever properties you want to something you created. Photon torpedoes, warp drives, tractor beams, the rules of how they work are created by the author. Dan Erickson could say this severance chip thing does whatever he wants it to do because it's his creation. He could, but he hasn't. I like the fact he's gone the Michael Crichton route and decided to let existing science be the basis for his invention. He has said he attempted to ground his story in known science. He also seems to be limiting the powers and capabilities of his creation to what might really be possible in the not-too-distant future. If we're going with known science, these theories get shot down based simply on storage capacity. A severance chip is too small to contain an entire consciousness based on current technology. I've always felt that memories are the things that take up the most physical space in any brain-based storage media. Pictures, video, audio, memories are multimedia. They also happen to be the things we are bifurcating with the severance chip. This bifurcation is taking place in the severed worker's gray matter, not on the chip. It makes sense. Why wouldn't you use a proven storage media that's already easily accessible and huge? Scientists have determined the brain is capable of holding up to 2.5 million gigabits of data. We haven't come up with anything close to that capacity which would fit in the same space when it comes to memory hardware. This means once installed, the chip is surrounded by storage. Why try to replicate something the brain already does so very well? I'm sure they're using the space that's already there. The function of the chip then becomes controlling the storage media. The chip is splitting memories and keeping them separated. This is where the author or viewer has to extrapolate a bit. I believe the chip is able to format the patient's gray matter for data storage. It also seems to have the ability to create dedicated storage areas that can then be separated from each other. I really think the chip uses the brain like it's a big hard drive. Virtual drives are created to be used for individual memory storage. After undergoing the severance procedure, the worker gets an any drive where their work memories are stored. The Audi drive already exists. It's what you were born with. The chip is just carving a space out from an unused portion of the worker's brain to create a separate, switchable any drive. This idea for how the chip works does raise other interesting questions and possibilities. If you can create one dedicated hard drive, why not two or 
10. Each area of dedicated memory storage could be holding the memories of a unique any persona. This is where I think we're getting the tempers who perform at the waffle party. The dancing sex worker persona is one of the storage areas within the worker's brain. It's only accessed when needed. The other personas can't remember being switched to it, so they don't even know it exists. This might be how they've convinced Ms. Casey she has some kind of outie existence. The dedicated virtual hard drives analogy is also supported by the way Petey described his reintegrated memories and the way they don't line up. It's like having two different lives suddenly stitched together. But the relativity's fucked. So my first day at Lumens as far back as my fifth birthday and with two pass, it blurs the present too. It sounds like data may be stored differently in the any drive than the way the Audi drive naturally stores data. Once Regabi is able to cause synaptic coupling to occur, two drives now become accessible at the same time. This is where the timeline of the any becomes distorted and seems longer than it really is. As an aside, consider a severed worker who has a dancing temper sex worker persona. If they get the Rigabi procedure, those memories of their forced participation in past waffle parties would now be mixed in with the rest of their life memories. There might be some memories Ragabi should leave inaccessible, if possible. If we accept this gray matter as hard drive theory, then we have to give up on the moving a personality theories about the chip. There are no memories or personality information stored on the chips. I really believe that. The only data on the chip would be settings and data addresses pointing to memory areas of the specific brain where the chip was originally implanted. The only reason Cobell wanted Petey's chip back was so she could prove reintegration and discover whatever clues might be hidden in the data signatures. Otherwise, Lumen doesn't seem to care about recovering chips from the heads of severed workers. That one line when Cobell slides the chip across her desk to Milchik. That's Petey. That's Petey. Has fueled a lot of this chip recovery speculation. Many people interpreted this line to mean literally Petey. His entire any consciousness is stored on the chip. I've never thought this to be true, but he does say it. Why does he say it? I think it's almost like slang. When you are a severed employee, you are defined by your chip. The chip is what's making you who you are as an any, but it does not mean all of your memories have been loaded onto the chip. I've noticed and even commented on this one before, but it hit me even more this time around. Devon wears severance chip themed clothing. She was wearing that blue sweater at the No Dinner dinner party. Her sweater at the Demona birthing center was green. In contrast, Rickon never wears severance-themed clothing. His stuff is always earth tones. I know if you look hard enough, you can eventually start to convince yourself you're seeing patterns that aren't there. This is the basis for things like astrology, numerology, and fortune cookies. So maybe it's nothing, but I do keep seeing these little hints with Devon. I'm not going to be surprised by anything we might discover about Mark's sister. Wow, Kazal. When Devin goes to the Arteta's birthing lodge, there's a guy leaving just as she arrives. She calls to him, but he either ignores her or doesn't hear. At first, I figured it was Angelo dropping in to check on his severed bride. Now I'm thinking Angelo may also be offloading the concerned dad duties as well. The guy who left the lodge is dressed all in white and seems to have lighter colored hair. I'm pretty sure this is not the senator. This might be their version of a midwife. He looks like he could almost be a hospital orderly. Never caught this before. The upholstery in the Arteta's birthing lodge is green. The sofa and the chairs are covered in the same material as what you see in the Lumen Atrium Severed Reception Area. The severed elevator reception area, wellness. I hope they got a deal on this stuff. Since green is the color of severed areas, this decoration in the lodge is perfect for the birth and babies version of Gabby. 
I've seen a lot of discussion about how and when Gabby is getting switched. You guys are making this way more complex than I really think it is. One of the more creative but also outlandish theories I've seen said the smiley gate out front was actually fitted with the severed barrier hardware. The switch happens when you drive through the gate. I don't think switching Gabby is nearly that involved, and I'm pretty certain it's not dictated by location, unlike what we were told during severance orientation. I'm guessing Gabby's chip is controlled by a remote and something more portable than the panel in the security office. If it is a switch, and it does operate regardless of where it is located, I'm betting it could be controlled by a small remote. I have nothing to base this on, but I'm picturing something like a garage door opener or a TV remote. If you see the senator take out a remote and you hear the car locks chirp, then Gabby changes, you'll know what's going on. I made that joke about a car lock type remote for switching Gabby on Reddit. It was taken seriously. Somebody wanted to know at exactly what time I had seen Arteta with the remote. I have to remember to be more careful about joking around on Reddit. The visible times on the clocks, especially in MDR, are usually very tight. If you put a clock in a shot, you can be guaranteed I'm going to check it and be watching to make sure it advances logically. Same with timers or, you know, compunction counts in the break room. It's like bait. If you dangle it out there, I'm going to hit it like a hungry bass. Severance normally does a great job when it comes to keeping the times correct from shot to shot and scene to scene. I guess when you have huge analog clocks visible in many of your background shots, it's almost a dare to the viewer. Continuity probably has somebody assigned whose only job is keeping those clocks accurate from shot to shot. Since they are so good about monitoring the visible time, I was surprised to notice one they seemingly missed. It's a pretty big whiff, almost to the point I wonder if it might not be some kind of a clue. Ms. Casey very specifically says, Distribution supplies eight minutes. Round trip. In the Grim Barbarity episode, when she leaves to go get notebooks, Mark and Helly make the decision to go find, you know, the pen caps. <coughs> it is very clearly 11.30 a.m. as Mark and Helly are leaving on their pen cap odyssey. They are leaving just moments after Miss Casey headed out to DNS. When Ms. Casey returns to MDR after picking up the notebook, she enters and says with great concern, Helliar? The clock on the wall now says 12.15. They stuck it in the shot very clearly. If you check your math, refiners, this means Ms. Casey's eight-minute round trip to distribution and supply has somehow turned into 45. Maybe she added a bathroom break and lunch? There is no explanation for why the trip took her so long, especially when she was so specific about the timing of the trip. Eight minutes. Round trip. It almost feels like we were supposed to catch this discrepancy. I was struck this time out by the immense size of the O&D production floor. We can see in O&D the 3D printers are labeled with a letter and a number. The letter is the row the machine is in. The number is the specific machine in that row. We are looking down an aisle formed by these machines when we enter O&D. The row to the left is E. The next row to the right is F. The machines on the left are E1, E2, E3. Then on the right, F1, etc. Here's the question. Are we standing somewhere in the middle of this huge room? Are there rows A through D off to the left? And then who knows how far down the alphabet they go going to the right. I want to go to the walls of the big O&D room and find out just how massive a cavern that place really is. Another scene that stirred up discussion about the chip is at the start of Hide and Seek. This is where we see Cobell making a necklace out of Petey's chip. It has passed beyond being a usable piece of hardware to now becoming jewelry. Kind of like those sculptors who started creating art out of discarded motherboards from old desktop computers. I've always kind of thought if what they downloaded from Petey's chip actually contained his memories, couldn't they have reviewed his final days to answer some questions? They could have positively identified Rigabi and would have discovered Petey was being helped by Audi Mark Scout. 
Grainer could have learned his Ragabi info from Petey's chip instead of getting it from a tip. As mentioned, I don't think the chip contained this info. I'm pretty certain Petey's memories, both sets, died with him. The plant room in hide-and-seek seems like such a weird anomaly. Why is it there? What are they really using it for? How is no one monitoring or maintaining it? Bert seems to be the only one sneaking in there. I'm amazed they are able to maintain that level of vegetation 13 floors below ground. This one makes me wonder if the plant room is one of Dan Erickson's weird things for the sake of being weird that managed to stay in the script. I just this time out really noticed the odd positioning of Gabby and the senator when Devin sees them standing in the park. Arteta is watching the boys play. Gabby is standing at a respectful distance about 10 feet behind him. There's some weird power thing going on there in a handmaid's tale kind of way. Also, just to note, they are in the same park where we will see Irving reading his Marcus Aurelius book with Radar in the episode What's for Dinner. When Devin checks out Gabby online, I was curious about the private bio page she finds. The address in the bar isn't really a website, but since I had a tab open, I thought, eh, what the heck, let's Google. If you do a search for Gabriella Arteta, it's a surprisingly common name throughout the world. There are seven different Gabriella Artetas listed on LinkedIn. None of those are from Kier or associated with Lumen Industries. There are a couple on Facebook with the same spelling of the first name. Some versions of Gabriella double the L at the end. There are Gabriella Artetas in Mexico City, Canada, Peru, Paraguay, and Burbank, California. None of them are married to a senator as far as I can tell. Of course, being this deep into it, I also had to check on the existence of an Angelo Arteta. Angelo, not as popular as Gabby. I can only find one Angelo Arteta. He's located in Legazpi, the Philippines, and no, he's not a senator. A random credits update. During the episode In Perpetuity, we get to hear from Myrtle Egan's statue in the Hall of Past CEOs. I didn't mention this in the podcast about the episode, but the voice of Myrtle was being provided by actress Jillian Lindig. I think that to be an Egan, either a true Egan or anyone working in this Lumen family, what you are is the keeper of an ethos. Jillian is an American actress originally from Johnson City, Texas. Jillian didn't start acting on TV until 1981 when she was 41 years old. Jillian, like many of our Severance cast, was a Broadway and stage performer who dabbled in TV. She collected nine total IMDb credits over the course of 40 years. Unfortunately, her appearance on Severance was her last TV credit. Jillian passed away in July of 2022 at the age of 80. The lyrics to F.U. Lumen contain the line, You took my first love. If June is writing what she knows, this might be a comment about losing her father to the Severance program. This viewing, it did also hit me just how referential this line is to Mark. Gemma, his first love, has been seemingly taken from him by Lumen. He doesn't even know it yet, but it's true. Write what you know, right, June? Speaking of, I'm curious about the existence of June. June Kilmer, Petey's daughter, makes two appearances in the first season. I find myself wondering why we got so deep into her life. Petey first mentions her in Mark's basement. Who's June? June is my daughter. Greatest kid on earth and a hell of a guitar player. With a big emphasis on her name. No way we're going to forget it. We first meet June at Petey's funeral. Then Mark and Alexa get to see a performance from Fisherman, June's punk band, in the next episode. Why introduce June and then bring her back? It puts a huge spotlight on this character. Is June introduced to let us know the prevailing attitude about Lumen might not be so positive in Kier? Could we possibly meet up with June again? Could June and her anti-Lumen friends be somehow called into action in the second season? There is a lot of negative Lumen feeling around Kier. 
If Mark's crew of rebellious innies was able to harness this energy from Fisherman's fans, it might be helpful to them. Fuck you, Ruben! Seeing Mark checking out Grainer's keycard, I noticed it's got what looks like a screened gold Lumen water droplet logo in the corner of it. Very cool. It looks a little like pictures I've seen of a No Limit Amex black card. I have the blue Lumen keycard, and a big shout out to podcast listener Justin Yates for setting me up with one, lanyard and all. If you're ever in prison, you'd want to know a guy like Justin. He can get stuff. The blue one is cool, but seeing this black one more closely, now I'm really thinking I need one of those black key cards. They are very cool, don't you think so, Justin? More cues from Devin during Selvig's lactation session. Devin is in a dark green sweater over a blue blouse. Baby Eleanor is wrapped in a bright green blanket. The more you're aware of it, the more chip-themed clothing you find around Devin all the time. But I don't think I'd remember even Clark Gable if I'd just given birth. (laughs) Selvig's reference to Clark Gable as a head-turning matinee idol seemed off to me time-wise. Kind of like Jame telling Helly she's from a film. Patricia Arquette was born in April of 1968. Actual chronological time, she was just turning 54 when season one was being released. Patricia's embraced her natural gray hair color, which I think is fantastic. It also allows her to play a greater age range. I get the sense Selvig is being portrayed a bit older, say early 60s, with her wardrobe, hairstyles, and just her life story as a widow. Our time cues are saying it's 2022 in the world of severance. This would make Clark Gable from another time. He was really setting hearts thumping in the late 1930s and early 40s. Gable was doing two or three movies a year from 1938 until 1941. By the 1950s, the decade Selvig was most likely born, Clark was still working, but he was an aging former star, not a heartthrob. Clark Gable died in 1960. It was an off-the-cuff remark on the part of Cobell slash Selvig. It was the first star she thought of. This seems odd based on how old we think she is. If she's lived an uninterrupted chronological life, Cobell was probably a teen in the 1980s. For most people, teens to early 20s is that time in your life when you're very aware of movie stars and maybe even had star crushes. As you get older, maybe you stop watching movies or you don't pay as close attention to pop culture, but you still know those names from that period in your life. She could have referenced Tom Cruise, Denzel Washington, or Rob Lowe. They would have seemed more appropriate as heartthrobs from what is most likely Selvig's era of movie fandom. Clark Gable seems to be a cultural touchstone which would make Cobell much older, more in that age range where some people are slotting Jame, and about the time Black Sheep Ambrose would have had his very short reign. My mother, who was born in 1929 and is now 93, was a big Clark Gable fan because she was a teenager in the 1940s. Cobell continues to be the perpetual puzzle. Nikki James, who plays Alexa, is such an amazing and understated talent. I loved her silent, compressed lip reaction to Mark ripping up the Gemma picture. It's so understated and beyond awesome. No words, just the perfect facial expression before she turns and walks away. I hate it. We probably won't be seeing Ms. James in the second season. No one is pregnant, and I'm pretty sure she won't be giving Mark a third chance at a date. He really blew it the last time. Even though we won't get to see her on Severance, Nikki is staying busy. She is listed as being involved in the upcoming 2024 Marvel reboot series, Daredevil Born Again. Not sure what she's doing or how many episodes she's in because details about the series are still being withheld. Once it hits, it might be worth a look just to see what Nikki is up to. Fun little Severance-related side note about Ms. James. 
She appeared in a TV fundraiser in 2020 where stars read selected scenes from Angels in America. Nikki read the role of Lumen, only this one spelled with an E instead of an O. This just dawned on me in What's for Dinner after Helly makes quota. You remember Mark was given another wellness session by Cobell? One last time. Really? This is the one where when Mark gets there, Miss Casey is packing things up, saying she's about to retire. Mark wants to know when she found out. She says it was just a moment ago, and she is retiring at the end of this session. The timeline of this sequence didn't really hit me before, but this is Cobell creating distress for Ms. Casey. I think Cobell's trying to get Mark to come to Ms. Casey's aid. We know Cobell manages Ms. Casey because Cobell summoned her to the office for the heli shadowing day. So Cobell sent Mark for his additional wellness session. After sending Mark on his way, she sends word to Ms. Casey she's fired. Well, fired after she does one more session for Mark S., who, by the way, is on his way. This has to be a setup. It's the perfect situation for Cobell to run another experiment. She's placing a damsel in distress right in front of Mark. How will he react? This feels like a test of his... Oh, valiance. More fun with this soundtrack. As Ms. Casey is making her way to the testing floor elevator... I was hit by the low-level thrumming you hear in the background of that hallway. Do you know if I'm happy up there? Of course. You do all sorts of wonderful things. It's not music. The music is laid in over it. This sounds like muffled, large equipment noises. It's a big, all-encompassing thwump, like being in a power plant with giant turbines or in the bowels of a big ship where the engines are thrumming. Could I just... I'm sorry. I just have so much to do today. On you go. The water cooler is such a big part of the stories provided to Audis about why they were injured, yet I had not noticed the water cooler until this pass. It's sitting to the right of the vending machine in the kitchenette. It kind of fades into the background because it is white with a clear bottle on top of it. Here's a question. Why haven't they put mics or cameras in the storeroom? especially after the refiners began to use the storeroom as Rebellion Central. Starting in the latter half of Defiant Jazz, they were in there plotting and whispering all the time. If Seth or Cobell happened to check an MDR security camera during one of these all-refiner planning sessions, they wouldn't see anybody in the work area. Why didn't they get suspicious? They added those security doors to the main entrance, those doors seem like a much larger job than adding a couple of cameras to the storeroom. As we've seen, Lumen knows cameras. I've seen this one mentioned a couple of places. It's not mine, but I did want to point it out. When the guys are rolling out the carpet and putting up the signs for the big gala, we get a subliminal message. The sign they are putting up says, Welcome, friends of Lumen. As Mark is passing by, headed for the parking lot, one of the workers moves in front of the sign and blocks a couple of letters. We briefly get the message, ends of Lumen. It's barely there for a moment, but it is there. Was this intentional or just the way it happened to work out in the shot? It seems a little too perfect to have been an accident, taking into account the way they've regularly used Helly's name, then covered up the Y, you know, welcome to hell. I certainly believe they would intentionally set up this ends of Lumen line as well. I really like it when situations are subtly created that become big story turns later. One I just noticed that I really like was the way Mark invited Cobell to Rickon and Devon's for the reading. She was very upset from having just been fired. She was crying on the floor of the basement when Mark rang her bell. <laughs> At first, she says she doesn't want to go. Finally, she says... She'll go, but only if she can drive her own car. And that way I could leave if I'm uncomfortable or afraid. Such a subtle little thing, and it's presented so naturally you don't give it a thought. 
This decision becomes very important later. If Mark had driven, Harmony would not have had any way to leave Beer House and make that mad drive to Lumen in her White Rabbit. Oh, wow, I had not noticed this before. Rickon's reading is being catered. As soon as Mark enters the house, a young lady in a black uniform goes by carrying a tray of champagne. How did I miss this? As Mark and Rickon are talking, another uniform server goes down the steps. This explains how new mother Devin was able to put together such a big party. Something to watch for around Beer House. I'm pretty sure I'm seeing cameras. There are these black shiny discs on the walls. I've seen them in a couple of places, in the halls and going into the bedrooms. With all of the theories swirling around Rickon regarding his relationship to the Egans and his possible past as a severed worker, I wouldn't be surprised to find Lumen monitoring the Hale household with a few cameras. I'm curious as to who might be doing this monitoring and what they've discovered. There's a clock over the door leading into the chip control room in the security office. When Dylan has his seat to start the OTC and takes out his 3D cube, they give us a long shot showing the clock. It's 6.32 p.m. Something else I noticed when I froze the frame to get the time off the clock, there's a coffee maker in the security office. It's sitting over to the left as you're facing the door that leads into the chip room. Nobody gets to sleep on the severed floor. There's what looks to be a used white styrofoam cup sitting on the counter in front of the coffee maker. Perhaps this was Grainer's last cup the last time he was in this room. Every time I pause to look at the control screens Dylan is using, I'm always finding something new. Here are a couple of things I haven't mentioned yet. Initially, when Dylan accesses the computer screen, you can see names with little people icons above each name. Once Dylan enters manage mode and begins to select the specific macrodats, those cute little people icons change. They become tiny representations of a severance chip above each name. It's a little tube at an angle, red on one end, blue on the other. This is a perfect example of how, like what we saw with Petey, the severed worker is reduced to their chip as their identity. Also in these screens, there are software tabs across the top above the worker's info chips indicating the various departments. Dylan, of course, has MDR highlighted, but you can also see O&D is one of the available tabs. Down in the listing of names with chips, I do see Bert G listed. Even though you retire, your chip control must remain active. When we were looking at the names divided into departments on the big panel, O&D wasn't represented, and I couldn't find an entry for either Bert or Felicia. Is O&D somehow an upgraded department? Could they have newer or possibly different chip technology? We only find them listed in this computer control program, not on the older switchboard. Fun side note, Bert G's name is listed right next to Kenny G. Some parts of the severed floor may feature smooth jazz during the melon bar. Another little tidbit I just noticed is a column heading called Uplink. Each refiner has a listing of uplink codes, which seem to be for satellite communication. I was curious in the first season wrap-up about how they were controlling the chips remotely and if the chips could get out of control range. Seeing this uplink menu, I'm thinking they might be skipping over any terrestrial control and going right to the far more sweeping satellite control. This would eliminate those worries about a chip being out of range. Miss this one, and this is even after figuring out the black goo sound in the last wrap-up. At the very end of What's for Dinner, when Dylan is stretching to reach the switches on either side of the door, music begins. It's the same slowed-down version of Ace of Spades we were hearing during Irv's black goo scenes. I can understand this thematically because Herb does have Motorhead running during this sequence. 
I don't know how I missed this, but now I can't stop looking at it. In the cold open of the finale, when Natalie, Helena, and Gabby are getting on the glass elevator, we get a brief glimpse of the floor below. The big blue box that winds up behind Helly's head during the entire ride down is that relief sculpture of Keeregan's head. Do a freeze after Natalie turns back to Helly just before Helly gets on the elevator. They've got spotlights in each corner, and the entire sculpture is bathed in blue light. Looking more closely at this scene, I can now see what I thought were decorations are actually balconies. The blue lines that seem to be emanating from Heli's head on the ride down are blue lights along the handrails of the balconies in the Lumen Atrium. Since I did spend quite a bit of time just recently on the finale, there wasn't much new jumping out at me this time around. It is excellent, and I did enjoy seeing it again. In regards to the finale, I got into an extended discussion in a social media thread within the last couple of weeks. A commenter was very certain it was Cobell who delivered that tackle to Heli in the final moments of the finale. They were so adamant about it being Cobell, I started to question myself and had to go double-check. After going through the move as frame-by-frame frame as is possible with Apple TV+, Plus, I'm more certain than ever it was Natalie who delivered the heli hit. You can see her hair and the glint of her dress coming in from frame right. She takes heli on across the stage from right to left. Cobell was standing backstage to heli's left from our perspective. If Cobell had delivered the final tackle... Helly would have probably gone the other way across the stage. I have some random Season 2 production information. Jeremy Hindle, the Season 1 production designer who created the incredible Severed Floor Hallways, among many other things, has moved on. He was busy last year doing production design for Top Gun Maverick and a Netflix movie called Spiderhead. Spiderhead, starring Chris Hemsworth, looks pretty cool. I watched the trailer. It's got a futuristic feel and a severance bent to the storyline. Jeremy's influence will, of course, still be felt on Severance in Season 2, even if he isn't on set day-to-day. I can't imagine them drastically changing the design of the severed floor we've come to know and love. The production design responsibilities and creation of new departments in Season 2 will be handled by Hindu Kim. Kim got his start in 2001 as the assistant art director on the Woody Allen film Curse of the Jade Scorpion. Kim has notched 34 total gigs as an assistant art director in 23 years. The Get Down, The Born Legacy, and Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island are just a few of the big-name movies where Kim's worked. The same kind of thing appears to be happening with Andrew Baseman, who did set decoration in season one. Baseman is only listed for the nine first season episodes. David Schlesinger is listed as set decoration on five episodes starting in season two. Schlesinger has been an active set decorator on some big name projects with 55 IMDb credits going back to 1991. He was set decorator on some very stylized and big-budget projects like Breaking Dawn, Parts 1 and 2 in The Twilight Saga, and both John Wick Chapter 2 and Chapter 3 Parabellum. He was set decorator on 2019's Knives Out, Hustle from 2022, and many other recognizable projects. He has a good mix between movie and TV series. I have one more glimpse into Season 2, and this one may even be considered a spoiler. I'll give you a few seconds to decide whether you want to hear this or not. Skip the spoiler, fast forward one minute and ten seconds. You ready? Two pictures were posted to the Severant subreddit showing a scene from Season 2 production. Both pics were taken in the Utica train station by emergency support services personnel. They were hired by the production, but they probably didn't sign an NDA. If they did, they violated it. The images first appeared on Facebook, where they have since been pulled down. The Reddit poster had managed to grab copies before they disappeared. Such is the nature of the internet. Once it's out there, it never goes away. These shots show Audi Irv and Audi Bert G seated together at the Utica train station. They are also shown walking by the Union Station barbershop. 
John Turturro has Ditto, who's playing Radar, with him on a leash, and he's wearing a leather jacket. This is definitely Audi Irv. I'm calling these photos support for my theory that Bird and Irv already either knew each other or do get to know each other as Audis in Season 2. During the course of the podcast, I mentioned several times how Severance reminds me of old-school graphic adventure games, like the ones that were produced by Sierra Online back in the late 1980s and early 90s. I was hugely addicted to the King's Quest and Space Quest series of games produced by these guys. SOL invented the interactive graphic adventure genre and authored some of its most popular titles. These were not shoot-em-ups. First-person shooters like Wolfenstein 3D and Doom were also being introduced about this time. Sierra Online games were pure puzzles packaged in an epic quest, and they were immensely addicting. I've always felt like Severance draws heavily from these games. The setup of the premise, the hazy history, the tone of the severed floor, even the fact that most places are empty or abandoned all mirror what you'd find in Sierra Online adventure games. SOL games always happened on empty spaceships or in abandoned castles because creating non-player characters was difficult and expensive. You would sometimes meet an individual who had information for you, like, say, the Goat Wrangler or Ragabi, but not often. As you were exploring, you would also find super valuable treasures which you had to pick up and put in your inventory. Even though they maybe didn't mean anything to you at the moment, you knew you might need them later. Rickon's revolutionary book and Grainer's black keycard both felt like these kinds of treasures. I figured I was imagining things. Those games are so old, and Dan Erickson is much younger than I am. He was born my sophomore year of college. I could very easily be his father. How would he know about Sierra Online Games? The original seven King's Quest titles for PC were released between 1984 and 94. Then I found something in Dan's Twitter feed which made me smile. In June of 2013, he posted one of his random one-liner tweets saying, If you didn't play King's Quest as a kid, you shouldn't be allowed to vote as an adult. Yes, proof of concept. Dan Erickson was influenced by the Sierra Online catalog. At least he's played a little King's Quest. Not to brag, but I solved all seven in the original series, and I'm sure I'm a better person for having done that. Are you needing more Lumen content? Needing more Zach Cherry? I've got a tip for you if you haven't found it already. Do not miss the Dylan G video tour of the severed floor provided on the Lumen Industries LinkedIn page. You can access it without signing up for LinkedIn. There are five videos. Each runs 30 to 40 seconds. Dylan G. takes you on a tour of the vending machine, the bathroom, the workstations, and even the founder's picture. Fun fact, there are five stalls in the bathroom, but only four refiners. Dylan tells us he likes to make use of all five by visiting a different stall each day of the week. These videos are all weirdly redacted with bleeps over odd things, like they bleep out the name of the raisins. There are some really bad jump cuts where sensitive info has been omitted. They bleep out Keir Egan's name and even put a black bar over the eyes in his portrait. Dylan's caricatures hanging on the walls of his cubicle are obscured so you can't see what he's doing in each picture. Also, big bonus, at the end of one of the videos, Dylan does manage to get himself stuck in one of his own finger traps. Finger trap is fun as long as you know how to use it safely. Weirdly, Dylan is also not allowed to name the finger traps thanks to a strategic bleep. His stuck fingers are obscured by a keyed over Lumen logo. These videos are hilariously crazy corporate weirdness and exactly what we would expect from our good friends at Lumen. I really don't think there's any story content in these videos the way there is in the Lexington letter, but you still don't want to miss them. They're a lot of fun to watch. 
A final note, refiners, I'm finishing up this script on Tuesday, May 2nd, the day the Writers Guild of America announced its first strike in 15 years. The writers are looking for a number of things, but one of the keys is a cut of the profits being collected by streaming services. Streaming is now a massive pipeline, hungry for content. It's being filled by the output of these same writers, so it makes sense they should be allowed to partake of this new profit center. Streaming profits leapt into the stratosphere during the pandemic. Writers are feeling left out and left behind because the last time they negotiated a contract, streaming was a tiny fraction of industry profits. Based on what I've read from both sides, they have a right to feel like they're getting shafted, especially since early 2020. These negotiations are also coming at a time when AI has proven to be stiff competition to creative providers, especially writers. Some studio heads have openly said they would immediately replace a writer with artificial intelligence if they thought they could get away with it. The WGA is also hoping to protect writers from losing their jobs to AI automation. No word yet as to how the strike will affect the continued production of Season 2 of Severance, but it most certainly will delay things. According to the terms of the strike, if a script is completed, production may continue on it. There can be no rewrites. It has to be produced as is, but it can be produced. Showrunners have the option to switch to their producer role and continue work on an already scripted property. Here's the problem. Most showrunners are also WGA members who contribute to the writing of the show. This is exactly Dan Erickson's situation. It might be allowed by the rules, but the social pressure of drawing a paycheck for producing while your union writing brothers and sisters are starving on a picket line, is going to keep a lot of production shut down. This means everybody from craft services to the stars will be affected by a strike like this. We can only hope for a fair and speedy conclusion to the negotiations so these guys can get back to work making our favorite show. Okay, refiners, since we both know how important it is to preserve the work-life balance, I think it's time for me to let you go. Again, I'm sorry to have bothered you here at home. As previously mentioned, I'd rather the other refiners not know about this particular chip option. I can't make any promises, but for now, don't plan on hearing from me again until Season 2. Okay, ready? End it. You've been listening to Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Severed is written, produced, and hosted by Alan Stair. Severed is not endorsed by Red Hour Productions, Endeavor Content, or Apple TV+. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Severance, the Severance logo and all video and audio of Severance and Severance characters are registered trademarks of Red Hour, Endeavor Content. Apple TV Plus or their respective copyright holders. Please make sure to leave a 5-star rating and review for Severed at Apple Podcasts. 